Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, and you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's installment of The Wonderful World of Wine. Every week, Mark and I bring you trending topics in the wine world. Now, are you this week, Mark? Everything's good, Kim. How are you? Good. I'm fine, thank you. Busy, busy as ever, but uh, everything is good. Good. Yeah. We have some some kind of wine trivia, (laughs) I feel like, to bring to our listeners today. And then some other things from kind of market research and what's going on out there in retail shops and with consumer attitudes towards wine. So the first thing that we wanted to talk about was that indentation on the bottle of a bottle of wine. And this is a question that we do get every once in a while. It's like, why is that there? <laughs> like, yeah. why is a wine bottle, you know, why does it have this particularly unique shape with this little indentation at the bottom? Like, does it have to be there? Is there a special reason for it to be there? And we found an article that really walks you through the whole reason why that started, why it's still there, maybe why you don't need it anymore. So a, a very concise little article in Reader's Digest about the punt at the bottom of a bottle. Yeah, Reader's Digest. I, I A few articles lately in Reader's Digest. Yeah. A blast from the past. Right? I know. With up-to-date wine information. Yeah. So the, the term for that indent is called a punt, a P-U-N-T. And first, I thought, Kim, we should maybe say the traditional, the standards of bottles for wine. They have what's called the Burgundy bottle. A, Bird, a Bordeaux bottle or a Riesling bottle, which people say like a f- flute bottle, right? Flute, right. So these are the different shapes of bottles. Shapes people. of the bottles. Yep. And then on the bottom, there's usually an indent. And the best way to really know what this is, is to think of a sparkling or champagne bottle. All champagne and, and sparkling wines have this big indent or a punt on the bottom of the bottle. So what's it there for? What's the function of this indent? It has a lot of history, right, Kim? And Yeah. And I think most of it is actually tied to the history. So there's not necessarily, I feel like, a need to have it. And there are some traditional styles of wine bottles that actually don't traditionally have a punt. So um, I believe that German flute doesn't usually have any indentation on the bottom of it. Right. But the reasoning behind it seems to be tied to both technological uh, reasons. So at one point in time, it made the glass stronger or it made the um, the bottom of the glass a little bit easier for the, the glass maker to make kind of a, a smoother shape so that there wasn't any rough edges on there. But the one that, that they mentioned first was about ease of pouring for servers in restaurants. So you could actually hold the bottle. And if it's a deep enough indentation on the bottom there, you could just stick your thumb in there and then hold on to the bottle as if the bottom of the bottle were like a little handle. Have you ever done that? I, I have actually. Yeah. It's it's not the the easiest thing to do, you know. Sometimes it's kind of hard to get that grip on the on that bottle that way. I've tried and been, you know, successful in my own way. I'd say yeah. <laughs> usually there's some weight to them that you can really 
put your hand in there and oh yeah and some of them are some bottles are really heavy but it it doesn't change the flavor of the wine whether there is that heavy indentation or not and frankly the shape of the bottle doesn't have any impact on the flavor of the wine either and this is a question that i sometimes get from people thinking that different wine bottles are shaped the way they are because they have an impact on the style of the wine inside but really it it's it has nothing to do with the flavor. It really just all has to do about tradition. Yeah, the bottle styles we talked about for wine types are usually consistent for the type of wine that goes in the style of bottle. But mm-hmm. that punt, as far as the the width, the depth, the shape, or even if it's existing at all, is usually different on, on most bottles. Yeah. So you had mentioned the punt is there for either to make it strength for the glass, but they also mentioned something about the history was there so it could stand up the bottle. Right. Yep. So because when, totally when wine flat, bottles, yeah, when wine bottle technology was in its its infancy and the bottles were maybe not made so consistently by machine and that a lot of them were were still blown by hand. And I think a lot of people don't know that the technology to make wine bottles is really only a few hundred years old. It's not like the wine bottle has been around for thousands of years. It's been around for hundreds of years, yes, but still a you know fairly new technology in the grand scheme of things. So for a lot of wine bottles, when they were being blown by hand, you needed this extra level of, I don't want to say protection, but guarantee that it would be sturdy and that you could stand it up. But then it also had to have the ability to lie down so that the cork wouldn't dry out. When you first learned about wine came in bottle types and the punt, what was your first thing you learned that it was really used, it was in the bottle for? I want to see if we kind of, because we didn't mention it yet to the to the listeners. I think that when I've run across it in my studies, like the, the history of it, it was more tied to sediment. Correct. Does that, yeah, sound, does exactly. that sound That's similar big. to what you learned? Yeah, yeah. I love when we go in the same direction. <laughs> it's because yeah, we've so, studied all the same stuff. <laughs> and if you, you look at the wine and it, it goes into the glass. So if a wine is the type where something is settling, if it's a sparkling where there might have been some yeast cells, dead yeast left in there or something, it would go around and settle to the bottom. So when yep. you pour it, you know, it helped out with that. So they didn't really focus a lot on the article about the sediment thing it was more as the serving thing. Yeah. The but other... I think they also mentioned about when red wines might throw some sediment as far as their tannins go, and then it can collect at the bottom of the bottle as opposed to Sticking still to staying in, in solution. Bottom. But then that doesn't, I mean, if you're laying your wines down, it's not going to be hanging out in the bottom of the bottle anyway. It's only if yeah. you've got your wine standing up. So that one, mm, Okay, that can work, but it all depends on how you're storing your wine. So the article mentioned, what if there is no punt in the bottom of the bottle? And this is something I had to ask you about. They, in the article, they say, don't fear. It doesn't mean the winemaking or, or the, it's cheap. Or They said, don't fear nope. if it doesn't don't fear. have it. No fear. So my question to you, Kim, if you pick up a bottle, do you look at that? No, I think bottle? it's... You know, I think it goes in a it's a similar in a similar vein to using heavy bottles, using heavy glass. It's more of a a marketing thing. It's more of a a way that the producer is trying to signal that this is a expensive fine wine as opposed to cheap wine. Like if we're spending and I don't know why it kind of equates in the in the mind that if you have 
this, you know, heavy glass bottle and this really deep punch on the bottom of the bottle that somehow that signals that this is an expensive to be put down kind of wine. But I think that is the, the intention. So the glass has to cost winemaker more if they use a thicker bottom with the, with the, it depends on the depth of the punt too. If it's mm-hmm. a real indent, it has to cost more form of, <laughs> right. Because then, the you know, form of the bottle. So you've yeah. given away space that would otherwise be filled with wine. So you still need to fill the same 750 milliliters of wine in that bottle, but now you've got a little bit more glass that you have to cover for as well. And you mentioned the weight, it would lead to being not as sustainable as another bottle if it had more glass use or more mm-hmm. weight to it, which we talked about a lot in the past. Yeah. So you yeah, have we were, no... we've been running into this uh, a little bit more lately, you know, the sustainability and the, the bottle weight, there seems to be a little bit more, I think, conversation about that. So if you had two bottles of wine in front of you, no labels on them, all you saw was red wine. One is a, is a short Bordeaux bottle, flat bottom and another one's in a Bordeaux bottle, but thicker glass with a with like a one inch indent punt on the bottom. You have no you'd have no impression that the the one that's flat is probably inexpensive compared to the other. No, I think that there yeah. there still is that sort of signaling that the the one that obviously has spent more money on the bottle and on the glass must be a more expensive wine. Even though I know <laughs> you know, from a experienced perspective that that's not necessarily the case. I still think that there is that ingrained idea that, oh, this must be a more expensive bottle of wine. So that, that marketing, you know, that marketing yeah. is it's doing its job. Yeah. And even to me. As, as a wine buyer, when I see that, I've seen it many times where it's a very small format bottle, no punt or a very small punt. Mm-hmm. And it's an expensive wine. Yeah. And I'll but say, does that go to the format so that a smaller size bottle of wine maybe just won't have that particular characteristic? You know, is it a is that solely a technological nobody makes half size bottles with a punt? Well, I think many times they're probably trying to save some cost on their end. And unfortunately for me, I won't put it on my shelf because I don't think people pay that high end if it's in that format bottle. That, when it's, the, like when a smaller, it's, like a smaller format. Yeah. When it's in a smaller format with no, you know, no <clears throat> punt on it, just huh. a very, if you compare it to a $10 bottle on another shelf, it looks exactly the same. So uh, to me, I, see. I think people go by the weight and go by the design a little more and feel like they should, they will spend a little more if there's more money put into the glass. And I remember years ago seeing a study, there was a wine publication that used to put out like a profile on wineries. And I think, you know, it was either like Opus One or some real high end wine. Mm -hmm. And they went, you know, here's where we get this, here's where we get that. And then they talked about their glass and they sourced their glass from China. Whereas other ones in the, you know, in the high end were, were using American glass. So in it, it actually told the cost of what they were paying for the bottle. It was like 50 cents or something. Mm-hmm. And they're charging $200 for the wine. So it makes you yeah. think like, wow, you know, yeah. I guess that's where I was kind of going with it. It's uh, when, when I'm saying shopping for a gift or something, there's something about handing someone a bottle that you can put your fist in the bottom of it and hold it, you know? And it has that heft. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not sure yeah. that we 
make the connection that, oh, the weight of the bottle and the way that the bottom of this bottle looks is the reason why I feel like it is saying these things to me that are conveying value and all of this. But I think there's just something in our understanding of what an expensive wine bottle should be that then translates into when you hold it in your hand, you feel it. Right. It's it's interesting. But uh, mm. for our listeners, if you never knew what that was, like Kim said in the beginning, it's a little trivia. We always <laughs> say that along with the how many turns on a champagne cage. It's, this is one of those. Yeah, this, <laughs> this is one of those things. Love our trivia. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. For more information about Kim, please go to her website at commonwealthwineschool.com. For more information about myself, please go to franklinlickers.com. We're here every week on Franklin Radio, WFER 102.9 FM. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We are also on Twitter at Wine Education. Next, Kim, we have an article... Again, a little survey about online consumers search for drinks via their needs, not brands. Now, in past episodes, we talked about how people are sticking to one brand and all they care about is brands. But now this drink business report is saying they're searching more for their needs versus the brand. So what do you think, Ken? This makes a lot of sense to me because I feel like it's how I do my shopping, too. Now, it's not necessarily how I do my wine shopping, but it's how I need something in particular. And I don't necessarily have a brand in mind. And I start Googling it, like, say, I don't know, pretty face masks or something. <laughs> you know, I'm going to Google it first and then I will be given a number of options. And then I will start making my decisions on what to buy or where to buy it from, from that search. So, it really is based on what my need is at that particular moment. So it makes sense that people would shop for wine in the exact same way. So maybe you are looking for a light white wine. Maybe you are looking for a, a wine to go with a particular dish. Maybe you're planning a wedding and you want to make sure that you have a wine that's bubbly and that you can toast with that isn't going to break the bank. So I get it. I get where this article is saying that searches and searches for particular categories are have crossed over into wine purchases as well. So I was getting nervous when I started the article because it seemed like it wasn't wine at first related because they were saying 78% of Amazon searches are unbranded. Mm -hmm. So, and, and then I want to bring it back to what you were saying. So <clears> when you search for wine, you might search for show me a white Bordeaux or something, you know, specific, but maybe the average wine consumer, when they're searching, you say is white wine near me or yeah. you know, light, red, light white wine right. near me. Yeah. That so a little of bit thing. of a broader, definitely a broader category. Right. Search. So you think that's how, the, what they're kind of doing here? I think so. With a search, just a more yeah. broader search. Broad, but also need-based in the moment. So like if you know that you are going to have a particular meal for say Valentine's Day and you do a search for what wine is going to go with this. Like I see that as a need-based search because you are focusing on one particular time that you are going to use this wine and it's fitting in that 
in that need category, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. They mentioned consumers are looking for more health conscious, low cal, gluten free, but not specific brands. So mm-hmm. on that, I think maybe they don't know what brands make yeah. you know, low cal, healthy wines. Exactly. That occurred to me too. Right. That so it, there's that a, the lack sense. of the lack of knowledge, the lack of information out there for those things. So then of course you would start with a search. And it's probably good data for wine companies for marketing. They they might need to market a little different to stand out, right, from mm-hmm. hearing things like this. So, you know, it, it, unfortunately, they can also use that, I think, in a bad way as saying putting more things out there with healthy, you know, to key yeah. you into finding their product when it's not really healthy or low-cal mm-hmm. or sugar-free or or anything like that because the search <laughs> all, all is, these other things we've talked about yeah, <laughs> like how, many, times. how many times have we done a google search for something and you get totally brought a different direction based yeah, on exactly. people knowing what you're looking for so and i i have found that with with wine all the time like even if i put in a very specific search like producer wine name vintage and maybe price or something and what pops up most of the time is not that wine. It's like, why did you even show me these other wines that aren't the wine I'm looking for? And then it's like, oh, because if I don't find the wine I'm looking for, I'm going to need an alternative. And maybe this wine will be the alternative. So they're taking the chance of showing me these other options on the off chance that maybe I will settle for not the exact same thing that I'm looking for, but something similar. Right. And I, I have to tell you, Kim, a little insider retailer thing, but I have a, a system where everything I scan automatically populates to Google. And mm. a lot of times I'll get caught and people say, oh, you know, ha- I know you have this product because they Google it. Right. But a lot of times people call me and say, you know, I saw you have this product. I'm like, how? The- no, like <laughs> I don't have that. I, product. I never had it. I never would. have. Like, how did huh. that even come up? So sometimes I wonder how things happen like that. Yeah. And I can actually see, you know, what people are searching for and stuff. And some of the questions like I don't you know, I don't know where they get the the information. But it, like I said, it all leads back to this article saying that it's a specific need. It's not yeah. a brand, you know, I and it need- can be really hard to find the wines you're looking for sometimes, especially online. And many times people come in, I'm looking for, I just make up something, you know, flowers, wine, right? And and the, that might be the, the name, but not the vineyard. So I can't search mm-hmm. unless I know the wine. So I have to put in the Google what they're telling me and right. kind of decipher and go the direction to find out who's behind it. Yeah. So I can find it to, to order for them. So I can see where it's it's not a branded. I can see that. I can see that. And doesn't that totally go back happy. to the complexity of wine like we were talking yeah. about last week? You yeah. know, that there are these layers of knowledge that when you have them, not only does it make your enjoyment of the wine a little bit more complete, but it also helps in this sort of nitty gritty part of even just finding the wine you're looking for. You know, we, we like to joke sometimes that somebody would come into the door and say, I had a bottle of wine once and it had a bird on the label. Do you right. have it? It's like, right. oh, my God, <laughs> like <laughs> really? Right. But then you think about it and it's like it, I, I could totally see myself doing that in a different context for a different product that I don't have this 
really well honed, um, you know, knowledge base of. So like cars, like I know nothing about cars. Like if I were to go, I don't know, ask questions to buy a car, I would probably say really stupid things that if you're a professional in that particular area, it seems like it would be common sense. But in reality, if you don't know the ins and outs of that thing, it's not. So there's a lot of that with wine. And I think that's one of the reasons why it is so, I think, intimidating for people and kind of tough to wrap your brain around. So yeah, we recognize that, listeners, yeah. that yeah. that there are all these little pieces of it that to us, we're like, why doesn't it just make sense that you would be able to interpret who's the producer on this label when we think that it's so self-explanatory, but really it might not be. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about myself at commonwealthwineschool.com, more information about Mark at franklinlickers.com, and you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. So another great article that we ran across in Wine Industry Advisor Network was about the need for small retailers and why it is so important that not every wine store turns into a big box store, but that we retain our little guys out there in the market for wine retail. And you are one of those little guys that we want to keep around, aren't you, Mark? Yeah. And they the way they worded this article was smaller producers need the smaller retailers right. now so, more than ever. And so I connecting think connecting those two, the smaller yeah. producers with the smaller retailers. So here's my take, Kim, as a small retailer. The This all goes back to, I always talk about our listeners, probably sick of me saying it, but the 90% thing, the big box stores or the bigger stores have to support and be supported by the bigger brands. They have no real time for a guy who's only making 5,000 cases when they need 5,000 cases for one or two stores. So, so we're talking about producers here, people, correct. not, not uh, people selling the wines, but the actual people making the wines. Making the wine. So the smaller stores then are the ones who support these smaller producers. So the smaller winemakers need a place to go. They're not going to go to a big box store because they can't give them what they need for all. They'd have to give them everything they produce to put on their shelf. So mm -hmm. this is why the relationship between a small winery, a small producer and a small retailer is works so well. And it also benefits you as a consumer and a wine buyer too, to support these people and to know where your wine is coming from. So that's my quick thing right away, Kim. Yeah. What about you? So I, I think that it can be one of those things that most consumers don't know what constitutes a big winery versus a small winery. So you might hear the production numbers for a small winery and, and think that that is a lot. Like, you know, you hear like 40 pieces, particular wine, like 30,000 wine that is so much wine. That's a, a small to mid-sized production, I would say. We have some producers that we work with in, you know, in France or in California that, you know, maybe of a particular wine, they only make 5,000 cases and you might be the oh, 5,000 cases. That is super small. Like that is really 
tiny production. So some of these bigger brands, you know, that you see kind of everywhere on the shelf, we're looking at what a million cases, yeah, millions, millions of cases, millions. Mark, yeah, millions, millions of cases. So when you hear the numbers that are like 50,000 cases or 35,000 cases, that's a clue that you're actually dealing with a fairly small production, you know, probably a family or definitely would qualify as a small business. So the little guys, the little guys that we're always talking about supporting, you know, support your small business, support your mom and pops, support those places that maybe do donations to your, you know, to the local community, or there's a little league team named after them, or, you know, all those those little things that that we talk about that are about community and small business people and you know wanting to make sure that people can earn a living doing things that that they can really take pride in and that they love doing so you know that's what we're talking about when we talk about these these small wineries they might have a family component like your store does mark or it's a husband and wife or it's a mother and her daughters and and these people are out there in getting dirty. Uh, it's like an episode of Dirty Jobs. And, yeah. you know, there's real work that goes into it. And, um, you know, people who really take pride in what they're doing. We talked about how the consumers, wine consumers lately have relied more on Google and apps. And many times, this is something to think about when people are buying wine, most of the wine they're seeing is from a bigger brand. So they're they're putting out reviews about it. They're putting out things on the internet about it. So when you use that type of, to research a wine, most of the time you're going to get feedback on the big brands, right? The the smaller producers might be harder to find that feedback on. So when the little stores are stocking those products, they know about that wine because chances are they have a relationship with the actual winemaker. They can tell you the story behind the bottle. Mm-hmm. When, when you go and shop in, in a bigger store, a bigger retailer, you really can't ask someone there, you know, what's the story behind this wine? Tell me about the winemaker on this wine. Tell me about what's in this wine, that type of stuff. So that's the real benefit of the small producers and supporting. And that's why they say now they need them because with everything that was going on, there's so many wine skews out there or brands out there. There's too many, well, not enough wholesalers to support all these little guys. So the, the benefits of a small producer being supported by a small retailer, it, there's just so much out there, Kim, that there's so many products that are being produced. It's hard for that smaller producer to get things on the big store shelves. So they need those smaller stores to get those products in there. They don't have enough wholesalers that want to support their product. So if they're lucky to get into a state, into a wholesaler, then they probably have to work themselves to work with the retailer to get it on the shelf. Yeah. And that was yeah. one of the things that I was going to bring up was that it's not just the level of the, or the responsibility of the producer and then the wine store owner. You know, there is this other level in between of the distributor and, right. and also the importer. So it, it's not necessarily the case just of, hey, you've got a little producer and, and they want to sell their wines in, in the United States. But how is that going to happen? You know, who is going to make those connections for that small producer so that they then can participate in the market and can 
actually get their wines into a store. So there are these different levels. So not only do they have to have a relationship and a business arrangement with someone who will physically bring that wine from a different country into the United States, that would be the the importer. But then in each individual state, there needs to be the wholesaler who is then the one who is responsible for selling to the restaurant, selling to the caterer, selling to the retail store. And different states have different systems. And if you've heard us mention the three-tier system, this is what we're talking about. But sometimes it, it can be really difficult to get your little brand into one of these distributors because they might already have something in that category and they they feel they don't need another thing in that category. And uh, I've run into this issue with trying to get wines from uh, the Finger Lakes of New York into Massachusetts, where, you know, when when we talk to distributors about these wines, the, the thing they'll come back and say is, oh, well, we already have three brands from upstate New York and the market can't support us having another brand. So it's almost like this gauntlet that needs to be run for these little guys to be able to even have the ability to sell their wines in our market. There's so many obstacles. And then you have the whole restaurant obstacle. It's hard for them, the smaller producers to get their products into a restaurant. And then with with the change in COVID, they're not really taking in new products. So the the small retailer is, a, is a in for them to get it in. But like you said, if, this, if the distributor is not picking it up to bring it in, for me to buy, I can't sell it to you. So right. it's a whole loop that uh, can be very difficult. Yep. But and there's also, you know, there's manpower, like how much attention is a particular distributor going to pay to your brand if you're one of these little guys that maybe doesn't have the funding behind them, frankly, that another company has. So, you know, if if you're a brand that has a lot of marketing dollars behind you, you know, you can wine and dine the sales staff and, you know, that gives them the opportunity to to sell those wines a little bit more aggressively because they know there might be, you know, programs or rewards or nice dinners or even just the ability to taste those wines over and over and over again. So it does make it difficult. Many times, Kim, these are exclusives that small stores are selling that box stores are not selling. Mm-hmm. The wines have, have been tasted, uh, you know, tested by the small stores. So many times big products are not even in, in tried and they're just put on shelves. So that it's all about a connection. Yeah. And if you're ever looking for something like this, just walk into any retailer or any restaurant and ask them for something that's kind of what they think is exclusive or they can tell you the story behind it or a product that you know the winemaker or the winemaker has been there promoting their product. If you want to support someone like that, yeah, uh, many places can hook you up with something like that. And this is one of the ways that if our listeners are really interested in tasting new things and finding that magic in a bottle of wine, these are exactly the producers that you want to discover. You want to find these little guys. You want to find these stories. You want to hear about the family background and and all of those things. And it's, it's our smaller retailers and it's our smaller restaurants that that are the ones who are bringing these wines to the attention of the public and and ones who do them really well like yourself, where where you know you you hold tastings and you meet with winemakers and and you you know you show off these special bottles and they're not always like super expensive. 
So just the the act of bringing them to people's attention and getting to try them. And as long as you, the consumer, has an open mind and wants to you know, try something new, bring something different home. It really can open up a whole new world of tasting really interesting, cool wines. And there's so much out there. And it's really a nice thing to know that you're supporting some somebody small, some small family business. And then when you get to meet them at tastings, like what you do at your store, Mark, like I, I feel like that that turns into such an experience for the consumer. Yeah, it's exciting when people actually see the people who are making the product and telling yeah. them how they're growing the grapes and, you know, what they put in the bottle and, and, making and even, that connection. you know, even people like ourselves who we've been doing this for a really long time, but if we go somewhere and that's, you know, one of the wonderful things about traveling to wine regions and, you know, maybe you have a wine that you really like and you get to see where it's made and you get to, you get to see the plants and you get to smell what the winery smells like. It's, it's just, you know, it's, it's really magical. It's all, that's the only word that I can, that I can put to it is there's this magic to it. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for joining us today on the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. We're here every week on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. All our past episodes can be found on iTunes or SoundCloud. We look forward to talking with you next week. Cheers. Wine, 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 wine.